The following podcast is brought to you by the Creative Arts Curriculum Team from Secondary Learners, Educational Standards Directorate of the New South Wales Department of Education. As we commence this podcast today, let us acknowledge the traditional custodians of all the lands on which this podcast will be played around New South Wales. Their art, storytelling, music and dance, along with all First Nations people, hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and hopes of Aboriginal Australia. Let us acknowledge with honour and respect our Elders past, present and future, especially those Aboriginal people in our presence today who have and still do guide us with their wisdom. Welcome to the Creative Cast podcast series. My name's Jackie King and I'm a Creative Arts Project Officer with the New South Wales Department of Education. Today, I'm excited to be having an industry chat with one of Australia's emerging musical composing sensations. Please welcome writer of Fangirls, Eve Blake. Hi Eve, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure Jackie, thanks for having me done a little bit of research and times people describe you as totally now a musical meme and a snooper who you hope never follows you around the internet oh my gosh where is that from who wrote that I'm not sure I read it somewhere on the internet so I know that you you're a playwright you are a composer a musical comedian and I guess your big work is fangirls which is the the very now musical that's about to come back to Belvoir. But I just wanted to talk through sort of how you got there and and the different things that you have done that has led to Fangirl. So I noticed that you have done a few different sort of solo tours and you had a, a play before Fangirl's Sugar Sugar, which debuted in 2015. So yeah. can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I always describe, especially when I'm speaking to teenagers who ask, you know, how'd you get where you got to? I always describe my career trajectory as really kind of wiggly. So I started as someone who was obsessed with theatre in high school. I discovered that. So I read as many plays as I could and saw as many plays as, as I could. And theatre's expensive. So sometimes I would write to companies and, and ask for cheaper tickets on the grounds <laughs> that I was a teenager and I could write them a report and tell them what my experience was like because they need to think about the next generation. How um, did that go? Did you get cheaper tickets? It was very tickets? successful, yeah. And I, I was on... Uh, so Sydney Theatre Company and Griffin Theatre Company used to have these youth advisory panels. So there were these sort of teams of teenagers who would see shows and report back to the company about how the companies could be more attractive to teenagers and and younger theatre goers. So I started as someone who was interested in theatre, but uh, upset by how I felt often when I went to the theatre as a teenager. I was the youngest person in the room and often the issues on stage didn't really represent stuff I was concerned with. But even at that age, I started to realize like, wow, okay, I feel that. And I am a cisgender white woman 
from a pretty privileged background. So who else isn't being seen on stage and who else doesn't feel welcome in these spaces? So really my career has been a series of experiments to try and like celebrate what I love about theater and break the rules that I don't really agree with. So yeah, I, I became interested in theater in high school. I started writing. I guess I was also really interested at that moment in becoming an actor. I left high school and I had started writing. I'd started entering playwriting competitions. And, and so I, I won this competition that Playwriting Australia did in my final year of high school. It was sort of like I co-won it with a bunch of other writers, but it was this little sticker that sort of said, keep going. So I sort of just kept writing and you know, I was never finishing plays, Jackie. I was always doing like 10 pages and then I'd be like, oh, it's hopeless. Like, you know, there's lots of struggle. But I uh, eventually started making these, these one woman shows or these solo shows that were, I mean, on reflection, they were kind of like interactive, weird character comedy pieces, but they were all about researching. So yeah, I did a bunch of solo shows and most of them were this format where I built this website and I asked people from around the world to anonymously submit on this website an answer in response to a question. So, the, so one of the shows I did, the question was, tell me about a version of yourself that you feel you no longer are, a person you feel you no longer are. And I got a variety of responses. Some people had like really nostalgic fond memories of a happier time. Some people talked about really destructive times they'd moved through and I got more than 2000 entries from around the world. And, and then I decided to turn those memories into songs. So it was sort of like an hour of 10 songs, which I guess in retrospect, you could say is a bit like a cabaret, but um, I also, you know, I was 21 and I was like, no, it's live art. Um, anyway, <laughs> all I'm trying to say is, uh, uh, yeah, I started making some solo shows. I moved to London. I kept on making work there. I started making interactive works around food where people would sit around a table with iPods and the iPods would tell them how to make artworks out of the food in front of their table. And then they'd start a discussion about their relationship to food, like just a series of experiments that culminated in, in 2015 meeting a 13 year old girl who completely fascinated me. She told me she'd met the man she was going to marry. And when I said, okay, well, who's he? She told me his name was Harry Styles. <laughs> and when I laughed at her, she said, don't laugh at me. I'm, I'm serious. I love him so much. I would slit someone's throat to be with him. And I just felt this recognizable feeling of just being, I say pregnant with curiosity. Like I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about this. I started obsessively researching fangirls and I mean, my career until that point, right, had been writing a bunch of plays, little mini plays that I never finished, doing a bunch of different like playwriting courses and getting into little residencies and groups and doing developments of like sort of little ideas of things. But I had never realized something as big scale as a full professional musical. So when I met that girl and started researching fangirls, I realized I was going to have to do a piece of, I was going to have to embark on a piece of work I'd, I'd never created before. And, and uh, I learned how to write a musical in the process of writing fangirls, right? Because I was sort of just, I was just an emerging artist trying lots of different things. So you wrote the music and the book script and everything for fangirls. So you've obviously had some music training in your background as well? Actually, no. Well, no, oh. I, I mean, no, I, that's very fair to assume, but actually, but my background is, you know, when I was in high school, I really wanted to do music as an elective. Cause I think at my school, you did it in year seven and then you could elect it for year nine, year eight and year nine. So I elected it in year eight, but I couldn't play an instrument. So my school was like, we well, have to pick one up. So I tried playing the guitar for a year, but I think the last piece I played at the end of the year, Jackie, was like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. So start of year nine, my English, my English, my music teacher pulled me aside and was like, listen, 
I don't know that this subject's going to work for you. I don't know that you're going to be able to keep up with all the performance exams. And I couldn't read music. Like I was really, I just theory and uh, reading music. I, I understood parts of it, but there were, there were mechanics of it that I just couldn't comprehend. I understood, I understood the feelings and like listening for all the different parts, but the, the maths of it didn't just didn't gel with me. So at her uh, suggestion, I left music and then uh, was like, because I was very dramatic, I felt very scarred. And I was like, oh, I'm just not allowed to write music. So when I was 20 years old, after, you know, gosh, let me think, I'm 14 when I get kicked out of music. So it's like six years of just like singing made up songs into my little flip phone and just wishing I could write music, but feeling like, I felt like a computer without a printer, right? I had no way to get it out. I finally was like, okay, stuff it. Uh, and I downloaded this program called Ableton Live. It's like a bit of composition software. And I just Amazing went on YouTube. It's, it's, it's awesome, right? So yeah. I just went on YouTube and I watched hours and hours of teenage boys explaining how to use this program. And so I taught myself. So on YouTube, they'll have tutorials of how to recreate certain pop songs. So like, gosh, when I was learning, Justin Bieber had this huge dance album, this really poppy dance album. And there was a song on it called Sorry. And I honestly would have spent eight hours just watching this tutorial on how to build that pop song. But by doing that, I was listening to the production elements that were being chosen and I could start to hear those production elements in other songs. So like an air filter in a pre-chorus that goes to the, to the drop. And so I, I, what I'm sharing is that I didn't have any musical training in composition. I learned it off YouTube and I didn't know that was available to me until I was 20. But yeah. I, I wonder what would have happened if I had discovered this earlier when I was a teenager, that it's kind of all sitting there on YouTube. You can get free trials for a lot of this really fancy software. And, uh, you know, to write this whole show, I, I kind of just, I taught myself off YouTube. I made a bunch of errors as I went. And then I shared stuff with people. Eventually for fangirls, I did work with a music producer who took my demos. But the other thing I want to offer is if anyone is listening to this and goes, I wish I could write music, but I don't play piano. I don't play guitar. I can't write music on a stage. These were all issues for me. But actually now I've learned to write music in a way that's so um, arrangement focused, right? When I, yeah. when I come up with a song, I'm already thinking what the drums might do. I'm already thinking about like the harmonic textures and what kind of frequency do I want them to be low, high or mid. And, and that is a real asset in collaboration. So anyone who doesn't play an instrument, please, you can still write a musical. That's amazing. Because when you said that your, your one woman show is like a cabaret of 10 songs that you wrote, I'm just assuming that you are a musical genius as well. <laughs> as I, Far, far from it. I honestly, I can't. Wow. And I really, you know I, what though, like you've got to give yourself some credit. That is pretty amazing. If you've had no music training and you are just able to learn that off YouTube and playing with Ableton. That's oh, thank amazing. you. That's very kind, Jackie. So let's go back to fangirls because I want to talk about your research from having that epiphany with the 10-year-old girl who was in love with Harry Styles and just mm -hmm. would kill for Harry Styles. I watched your TEDx talk, which I've got to say had me laughing for 10 minutes almost. And it really made me think about fangirls and how we view women as opposed to how we view men. And I thought, wow, I didn't even, I'm actually happy to be a fangirl now because as you talk about the the shrine to Harry Styles, et cetera, how ingenious that is and how they're able to come up with that, the executive functioning skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. So can you talk about sure. some of your research in writing fangirls? 
Sure. Well, thanks for those compliments. I mean, what I reflect on in that talk is it's fascinating, right? I, I met this 13 year old girl and I was fascinated, but in retrospect, it was a kind of morbid curiosity. It, the artist in me was going, wow, she's crazy. She's crazy. And, and like, this is a crazy subculture and I want to investigate it because it sounds like it would be juicy to write like a dramatic, funny story about this. And the more research I did, and at the time my first sort of portal was looking at fans of Harry Styles, so fans of One Direction when they were together. And it was interesting because my expectations was that I was going to discover behavior that was really competitive and it was about a bunch of heterosexual girls giving for the affection and attention of this dude. And then I did my research and quickly, like some of the first things I found researching the One Direction fandom were corners of it I hadn't imagined existed. So like Rainbow Direction, an entire facet of the fandom that is about protecting and celebrating and supporting queer fans. Uh, and they also have all these charity efforts where they raise money and they... Like, I always love talking about this one gesture they did where they, in a stadium in Boston, and they did it in other stadiums, they coordinated with a huge number of fans. They figured out which seat, seating banks, different fans would be sitting in, and then circulated different colored tiles that they could put up on their phone screens, like a colored image. And the result was that across the stadium, imagine a perfectly proportioned rainbow flag. So one bank's red, then orange, then yellow, then green. So like, it just... I was suddenly taken back by, yeah, the organization skills, the creativity, the goodwill, the fact that these people were uniting through a love of a musical artist, but it wasn't necessarily about like young girls being competitive psychos. And so I started to question, okay, well, why is that the dominant association we have with fangirls? And the real epiphany moment for me, which I talk about a lot, is that as I was researching One Direction fans, a couple months later, Zayn Malik left the band One Direction. And there was like this global outcry because it was sort of without warning overnight, but that there was also a lot of mainstream news reporting. And I really noted the language that was being used. I noted that fangirls were largely being described as hysterical and scary and crazy and hormonal and over the top and a bit much. And I had this epiphany of like, why, I always say this, but why is it that the image of a young girl screaming her lungs out at say a Justin Bieber concert might be described with those words but the image of a young man screaming even crying at a football match might be described with completely different words loyal passionate enthusiastic the love of the game Australian and I, I just sort of suddenly went oh wow okay so the the more interesting thing about fangirls isn't the way that they're full of energy. It's the way that people talk about their energy and the subtly gendered ways that we look at enthusiasm when it is deemed to come from like a femme source. And so really I realized that I did want to write a show about fangirls and I was excited to write a show uh, about like teenage girls where everything is life or death stakes, but I wanted to design it, as I say, like a Trojan horse. So on the outside, it seems to be kind of like sparkly, funny, almost like a parody kind of energy but underneath it it's gonna it's it's actually talking about some really big social themes that's talking about the different ways that we raise young women and men and so in the second act it kind of sneaks up on you and punches you in the gut you've researched all of this information about fangirls and then you've gone to write fangirls and I see that you were supported by Rebel Wilson through the Theatre Maker Scholarship and also through the Belvoir artists workshop to create fangirls is yeah. that what sort of helped you to get it off the ground 
Yeah, sure. So I mean, and like, finish it. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it's what I always reflect on is like, yeah, I had never done a project like this. And also, I mean, growing up, I loved musicals. I listened to so many cast albums, but I reflected and really all of my heroes were boys. You know, we're talking Tim Minchin, Lin-Manuel Miranda, poser lyricists before me who I was inspired by were all dudes. I didn't have that many women to point to who were my heroes. And, it, you know, it's small, but it, was, it mattered because I was trying to do a story about teenage girls from a female perspective. And I really questioned whether it was even worth trying and if it was worth it that people would listen right so when I I submitted for the Rebel Wilson Theatre Maker Scholarship which took place in 2016 and when I got it when I knew that she had picked me it was this moment of going I mean I still felt like I don't know if I can do this but I had someone who was saying well you better and I, I was a moment where as soon as I got that I started working six days a week on it so hard and I was like huh you know the grant wasn't in the scheme of things, that much money, but saying you, someone else saying you can do this really lit a fire under my bum. So I now try and say to myself, how do I give myself that sticker? And I would say that to teenagers, if you feel like I wanna write a play, but I can't, it's like, well, who's saying you can't? Cause if it's you, then why don't you just say something like, why don't you just for a second pretend that you could? And that's kind of the only way you're gonna get started. But yeah, in terms of finishing it, that was a, a long, long road. I really thought, oh, I'll write it in 2016 and we'll put it on in 2017. But that just wasn't the case. Like I was lucky that many producers were interested in the work, but it took two more years of, of developing the show in a really rigorous way. And sometimes that was through a funded workshop. And sometimes that was about inviting my friends around my kitchen table and asking them all to read it out loud just so I could hear it and saying to them really clearly, you know, I don't want tips at the end. I just want to hear what works and I want to hear what questions you have and what you didn't understand. And I making really clear to them, that's what I want to know. And I guess I want to share that to say that, yeah, sometimes you will get resources to develop your work and sometimes you won't, but you can actually keep moving if you find some kind friends who know when to talk and when to shut up. <laughs> You know, and hopefully everybody has some friends who can do that. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes if you can just get yourself attached to like a, there's so many different community theatre groups who would be interested, like you can very quickly find some friends who would be happy to do that sort of thing, I'm sure. It's a really good point. And it's interesting, like in music, you know, people pull bands together all the time. There's no, there's people don't have any issue with like contacting people going, Hey, do you want to do a collaboration? And I don't know if it'll work or not, but let's just try. And, and I think that sometimes theater needs a bit of that energy of just being like, Hey, do you want to just try something together? Yeah. So if yeah. you want to write a play and you're daunted, cause you're like, Oh, who, but who will be in it? How will it go on? It's like, well, it doesn't have to, you don't have to get a slot at the old fits next year. You could maybe just get some mates around a table and start there. Yeah, great, great suggestion. So you actually played Edna in the production of Fangirls that went on at Belvoir Street Theatre. Yeah. Had you, well, you'd done your one-woman shows, I guess, before. Had you done, like, a big musical before? Had you been involved in Absolutely not. And- no, well, I mean, look, I grew up wanting to be a performer and I'd done all of these solo shows. And if I'm honest, I got really burned out from them because I loved the writing part, but getting out there every night. I mean, growing up as a teenager, I thought there was no part that could be more glamorous than being a performer right it's just simple it's like everyone pays attention to you everyone claps everyone knows who you are if you get really famous you go to Hollywood and get free dresses like it just seemed like the best job right but then actually doing it sucked <laughs> and and you know it was a privilege to to be in the lead in Fangirls at Belvoir my goodness I learned so much but 
what I loved explaining to young people is like, I got on that stage and it was a privilege, but I was like, wait, I always thought acting was like the funnest, coolest thing. It was like nothing could beat acting. But now that I've also tried writing as a job, oh my God, it wins hands down for me. With writing, I can like, I can do whatever I want with my day. I've got so much freedom. I can sit in a cafe and just drink cappuccinos all day and just type away while I'm mumbling to myself and, and like in such comfort and freedom and but, but as an actor, you're like an athlete. It's like every morning you wake up and you've got to go, oh my God, am I going to sing that eight second high D today or not? And you become someone who suddenly is like, I have to save my voice and who can't go to any parties because you're working every night of the week. All this is to say, I really respect actors and having gone through that show and, and like the lead role in Fangirls has a lot of stunts, a lot of physical work. I mean, I was covered in bruises. I have so much respect for performers, but I, I wish that I could go back and tell my teenage self, like, you don't want to be an actor. You don't, you think you do, but there's more, actually way more fun jobs. It's not the funnest job. That it, everyone sees it with that glamour. Um, right. I know. But I think it's because, I think it's because in our psyche, we think to be acknowledged, recognized, known, understood, to be famous is to be legitimate. And I, I lived in that part. I grew up in that paradigm. I grew up when Paris Hilton was relevant. Like that's what I understood as success, especially for a woman. And now like all I do all the time is hope that no one will find things on the internet of me from my early twenties. Like I, I crave anonymity. Like you describing like, oh, you're a musical comedian, right? It's like, well, I, I did try that for a year and a half when I was 22. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, like I just, I feel like there's been such a paradigm shift for me in my 20s from going to, I want everyone to know about my work and I want to be out there to going like, no, I don't really want uh, attention socks. I just want to drink my cappuccinos and come up with rhymes for tampon in a cafe. Like I'm happy. You know what I'm saying? I just want to write my little lyrics and sit and just like smash out my pop songs. I think that's really interesting um, <laughs> about you not wanting people to see stuff that you made in your 20s. It's something I guess we tell the kids all the time, like, don't put anything on the internet that oh you God. don't be careful. And, and through doing these podcasts, I've talked to different artists because I've been researching them to be able to hold a 20 to 30 minute conversation or sometimes longer yeah. and know all about their career. And I start talking about them. They're like, Oh, that's old. Where yeah. did that come from? <laughs> that's the thing. And obviously that's sort of been a source of some of your inspiration too, about what you've been able to find on the internet. For sure. For sure. I read, and I hope this is right, that Fangirls is being turned into a series. I do hope that the Harry Styles uh, shrine is an episode <laughs> <laughs> I feel like for, for listeners like the context behind the shrine is uh, in my TED talk I refer to this uh, event that happened where Harry Styles the actual person was unfortunately sick on the side of a highway and within I think it's six hours of memory serves there was a shrine at the, at the space where he vomited and I I, I I pull it up in my talk it's one of the first and last things I talk about and at the first time I mention it, it kind of gets a laugh it's like that's crazy and by the end you, you take a different perspective on it um, but yes, thank you for that tip. I will consider that. I will take that into the brainstorm. Awesome. So is that like a television series it's being turned into or? Yeah, I can't say too much about it. 
the thinking is like, I've made this story that spans like different continents and it's about a global network of fans and we wanted to create a screen version of it and we're still in kind of the development stage and figuring out what form that will take. <clears throat> it's a really interesting and unique challenge, right? Like theatre and, and screen, whether that's film or TV, are such different mediums, especially when you add a musical element. So it's a really, it's a, it's a really fun adventure to be on. But the other thing I should say, I was never aware that if you have a career uh, as a theatre writer, that can turn into a career as a TV writer. And that's what started happening for me. So I have a, a variety of film and screen projects and it's such a different discipline. But I guess I just was never aware when I was younger that the two like can lead to each other. Yeah, cross over a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And the last thing I read is that you're adapting an Aussie kids book into a musical as well. So you still have more musicals on the horizon. Yeah, well, I'm so lucky because of the success of Fangirls. I'm now getting away with it, Jackie. People hire me to write musicals. So this girl who like four or five years ago couldn't play an instrument, couldn't write a song, was sitting on YouTube trying to figure out how to recreate Justin Bieber songs somehow I'm getting away with it. And if I can do that, if I can write a musical on my QWERTY keyboard, then anyone can do anything. (laughs) That is awesome advice. So now getting to how you've become Eve Blake, writer of Fangirls, which is getting a return season at Belvoir Street Theatre at the start of next year. And I'm sure, I don't know what will be announced when this goes live, but it's also going to some other places, which I'm really excited about. They're not announced yet, but uh, keep your eye out for that. And also we're going to be putting something on Spotify next year that I'm very excited about. So that's very exciting. How did you get to this stage? And I know you've sort of touched on, you've, you've just kept writing, you've just kept chugging at it. Did you do any particular courses after school throughout your schooling career did you like attend acting classes after school anything like that what what got you there sure so I went a lot to ATYP the Australian Theatre for Young People and I did lots of courses there acting courses they do productions I auditioned and got into I didn't do any writing classes but I started reading a lot of plays and I really recommend that I also want to say you know when I first started going to libraries to check out books most of the plays that I would find would be I'll just be straight. Like they would be like 30 years old and almost all written by dudes. And I'd pick them up and go, these plays suck. (laughs) But if you do a little research online, and especially now you can get PDFs and e-versions of stuff, you can find lists of like younger female playwrights if that's what you're looking for. Or maybe you're looking for trans playwrights or playwrights of color. Like there are ways to find the stuff that you want to read. And that's my number one advice is just read so much of it. I don't know if reading is old school now. I feel like everything's all about video content now, but just read plays, do it, do it, do it. Even if you want to act, if you want to write, whatever, if you want to direct, read them. And then honestly, once I left school, I started applying for little micro opportunities. So ATYP has a national writer studio, which is like a week long writing camp. Or when I moved to London, I got into the Royal Court Young Writers Program, which is like an eight week program, eight or 10 weeks for a bunch of playwrights. And they, they make you do exercises. It's like a little boot camp. So, um, you know, and I, I reckon probably across my career, I've done only five or six of those, but I was never went to a formal institution to learn how to write it was just lots of experimentation hey well sometimes that leads to learning how to do it look at how you've learned how to use Ableton (laughs) it's all sort of been through experimentation (laughs) so school for you you obviously had that experience where you were told not to continue doing music which I think is a crying shame (laughs) did you do drama at school yeah I loved it sick I was obsessed with drama I did I love drama 
and I, I had some really good encouraging teachers. So I was, I was very, very lucky in that sense. And did you do much writing at drama or were you still at that stage focused on wanting to be the actor? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think we had one assessment with a bit of writing in it. We had to do like a screenplay maybe. I can't really remember. I think writing for me became this thing that kind of emerged around year 11 and 12. And like I say, I would just write like a couple of scenes from a play and they didn't link up. But I, I would just, I would bash myself so hard for being like, why can't I just sit down in an afternoon and write a whole play? And it's like a whole play is something that comes in over many years or months. So... Yeah, I sort of just started experimenting. You know, the first time I think I finished something, though, was when I was 22. So if you're listening to this and you're like 15, 16, you're like, I can't write a play now, I'll never be able to write a play. Like, that's just categorically not true. And Fangirls, like, okay, Fangirls is a musical, but it's got a bunch of scenes in it, so you can say it's also a play. And that took five years. So, like, you know, you got time. Plenty of time. Yeah. Did, did you go to school in New South Wales? So you went through the New South Wales drama syllabus. So I you had, did. Had to do an individual project. I did. I did, did a monologue. I did a monologue with like some questionable Eastern European accent. <laughs> it was called The Jongleur by Dario Fo. I don't know. Yeah, I just wanted to do something really wacky and comedic. And there was lots of kind of physical comedy. And yeah, I can't remember much about that. I've since written an onstage monologue. Uh, or not onstage monologue. Like, what's it called? An IP monologue. Uh, so yeah. when I was... Oh, this is wild. So in 2011, when I did the National Studio of ATYP... Oh, my God, fun fact. So my I was not born as E. Flake. I was born with a... My birth name was Laura Hopkinson. And as Laura Hopkinson, I got that monologue published. And then I guess a few months later, I changed my name, which is a wacky story. So your experiences at school, did you have other opportunities outside of the classroom? Did your school have any sort of creative arts programs that sort of helped to inspire you to become a writer or to to be involved, I guess, in the entertainment industry post-school? Sure. I mean... I went to a very privileged school. We had very fancy high school productions, which were really useful. So I could watch like the director of those productions have to manage lots of different departments and understand how backstage works. Because I did backstage until I think year nine. And then I started getting into the shows. I guess that was very useful. I think as well, like I was very precocious. So I know that in year 11, I started doing this like Griffin Theatre in Sydney had this playwriting course that was otherwise filled with people who were like 40 and wanted to learn playwriting. But I just, I signed up even though I was 16 and kind of uh, I guess I would I would sign up for classes irrespective of my age and just change out of my school uniform and not really bring up how old I was which I guess is semi-dodgy but I I was just very precocious and like I would I don't know like nowadays there's that thing masterclass that people watch right but I would watch lots of like one or two hour long videos on YouTube of like playwrights discussing their craft that was sort of that was where I was getting a lot of my info Okay, cool. So in terms of our teachers who are listening, who hopefully are listening to this podcast, what sort of advice would you put out there for how we could support someone like you who was clearly showing like some interest because you're obviously going to those outside of school courses. You're obviously going to lots of different courses like that. You're, you're obviously interested. How can we help to to build that curiosity build that interest to and and prepare prepare our students for writing Um, yeah i mean 
I have a few answers to this question. So I guess pick and choose based on what you feel is most relevant. <laughs> Another thing I just realized that I did during high school precociously is like I said, I wrote to theater company, got the email address for various directors who I admired or, or, or writers. And I asked if I could have coffee with them or email them and ask them some questions about what they do. Now, a lot of the time people were too busy and that's fine, but sometimes people are like, yeah, sure. And by asking questions, I'm getting more of a sense of what's out there. I think I really gained confidence and enthusiasm and it made me want to engage more. And I think, like I said, watching these videos of playwrights discussing their craft and engaging with it and really getting a tangible sense of the world beyond high school really helped me move through a lot of the apathy I felt in high school of just like, this is taking forever. Why do I have to do this? Does that make sense? So like what motivated me was going like, oh my God, it's just there. It's just on the other side of the HSC, this whole world of theater making that I can be a part of. So I started writing and generating as much stuff as I could and kind of going, I'm going to get ahead. Like I'm going to engage now. I would suggest that one of the hardest things for young writers to do is just sit down and start writing because there's this whole crisis of like all your early work is going to be terrible it's going to be not how you want it to be and that's fine it doesn't have to be good yet it just has to be your first work so I would just really encourage uh, I guess I would encourage teachers to get students to to reach out and find resources that resonate with them to also do that research and, and find plays that kids can read that are going to light them up and that are different and weird. So like plays that radicalized me and maybe go, Oh my God, this is what's possible. Are plays like the wolves and dance nation. And there's this play that I, I read when I was 15 that like, I swear turned me into a playwright. It's called fat kids on fire by a writer called Becca Brunstetter. And it's about a bunch of kids who go to fat camp. Um, and like, just to use like the, the, the words from the, from the show, like it's weight loss camp, but it means that there's all these kids who usually are the social outcasts and now they reorganize their hierarchy at the camp. And it was hilarious. It was so funny. And it was about teenagers. And I was like, I want to see this. And really that's it. You need to get teenagers aware that there is stuff out there that they actually want to see that is, and, and then get them motivated to respond in their work and to go, oh, well, if a play can be like that, I'm going to write a play like this. Does that make sense? Very much so. And I think things like, being able to take the students to see the shows at Belvoir Street Theatre and, and any sort of shows. I know my students, I didn't actually get to take the students to see Fangirls. Another teacher in our school did. But those students came back so inspired and so excited about the show and, and watching something different that really got them hooked into to wanting to perform. And also seeing something different helps them to see what's out there. Yeah, awesome. And also, like, I don't know who's out there listening to this, but when Fangirls is out next year, I, I really love, like, guest lecturing for classes or, like, guest teaching. And that, that for me, that's a huge... That's my dream with this show, right, is to talk to teenagers about it. And, frankly, my ultimate dream is to see it in high schools being performed. That's when I can die happy. So, uh, yeah, if you're a teacher and you have questions about the text, like, just reach out. I love to talk about it. Well, I was going there with my next question. Oh, cool. <laughs> what would be out there for teachers to be able to yeah. hook into for fangirls, connecting with people like you or connecting with you sure. to be able to inspire their students? Well, here's what's great. Currency Press are publishing the script in January. So they will have a bunch of learning resources available from them. And I know that Belvoir also have a huge pack of learning resources. We, as I mentioned, we are putting out studio cast recording with most of the original cast early next year. So that will be there. 
And, and I guess also if you're teaching it and, or you want to know more about it, there is my TED talk. Yeah. There's going to be some good resources out there in early next year. So I'm excited about that. Fantastic. And we can also reach out and and see. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I'm look, I'm on Instagram, ping me a message or reach out to my manager. And like, I always want to answer a question if it's about, you know, helping teenagers understand theater making. That's amazing. I would like to finish with the final fast five questions. Great. What are they? (laughs) They're mostly about you and high school. So let's see how we go. All right. What what high school did you go to? Uh, Skeggs Darlinghurst in Sydney. And your favorite subject at school and why? Okay, so drama was my favorite, but I gotta say, looking back, I have a very soft spot for general maths because I did general maths in the HSC to make up units, and I love everything I learned in general maths. They taught us stuff about compound interest and investing and like life skills that you need as an adult. So if you can stand it, general maths is what's up. Oh, wow. Okay. That's yeah, good. That's not what I was expecting to hear. I love it. I love a spreadsheet. <laughs> uh, favorite teacher and why? Oh, shout out to Mr. Britton, my English teacher, who left at the start of year 12, broke all of our hearts because we were obsessed with him, who then came and saw fangirls and reached out to me and didn't, because I changed my name after high school, he didn't realise it was me. It was a very cute reunion story and we co-presented at an educational conference earlier this year. He's a legend. Oh, how exciting. Shout out to Tony Britton. Uh, Best school achievement or your favourite memory at school? Woo, that's a good one. What's my favorite memory? Like soft spot for all the school musicals. I'll tell you what, in in the school musical I did in year 10, Les Miserables, Ooh. we did it with an all boys high school. And at the back of the hall, I met the bo- the one boy from the other school who was even more pretentious than I was. We were at the back of the hall watching it, two drama kids being like, wow, whore number three really isn't selling her truth. Like just so pretentious. And we became good, good friends. And we work together to this day. So his name's Johnny Ware and he became the dramaturg or which is like the story consultant on Fangirls. And we still work together. And I guess it's, it's wild that I have a friend from high school that I still work with. Yeah. Like anything could happen with these friends you're meeting in high school, you know? Absolutely. And the last one, one takeaway from your school experience or advice to teachers. I mean, look, I'm sure this is teaching 101 and I do not mean to sound patronizing, but I think the story of me being encouraged not to study music elective, it's really interesting, right? Because for the six years then, I thought that I kind of wasn't allowed to be a musician. And that's just my interpretation of that. But I was 14 and I was pretty like sensitive. So, you know, it took me six years to realize that there are, you don't always have to go through the front door. You can kind of climb through a window into some knowledge. And I guess I would just offer to teachers, if you feel like a student is struggling with an aspect of the curriculum or the, or the way that you're supposed to teach them a skill, you know, there might be other weird ways that they can hack into it. And look, I know that's teaching 101, but I guess I just, I encourage teachers to like heed the story that I told because somehow I'm now getting paid to write songs for a living. And I'm sure that my year nine music teacher could never have guessed it. So there we go. But what would you say for a student who is like you, who was really interested Mm. in writing, where do they go to from finished, when they finish school? 
Sure. Now that I think is a really good question because I definitely remember feeling like I loved theatre and I'd go to plays and I'd go like, I don't know any of these people. I don't know how to just do plays. I can't just write to this company and say, how do I do a play? Uh, and I remember feeling that exasperation. So my number one tip is you want to find people around your own age or a little older who are your peers who are also emerging. And what you're probably going to do for the start of your career is really scrap together shows, you know, to see your play put on, you're going to have to borrow a projector from someone you're gonna to have to pay find some way to get together like a few bucks to borrow a space for a night and or I mean I once did a show in a pub and the deal was I can do it in the back room of the pub with no lights in it so long as everyone who came bought a beer because then like that would make it worthwhile for the pub like you, you're just gonna to have to do some <laughs> scrappy stuff it's not gonna be glamorous but you will slowly get better and better at it document everything film everything well and you know, figure out how to get the emails of the producers who you want to come and see it, get people's attention and you just climb the ladder slowly. That's the advice that I have. And finally, if you want to write musicals, if that's what you want to do, trick is this, write a two page summary of what you're trying to do, make it like a sales pitch, make it as pithy as you can, and then find out a way that you can record the highest quality demos of your work. It doesn't have to be ritzy over the top production, but if you can have like a, a three and a half minute MP3 of a song that's really funny and persuasive and doesn't sound like every other musical theater song uh and if you can get that in the email inbox of someone who produces theater that might be the way that you start a conversation and really that's a lot easier making a three and a half minute song than borrowing a pub and getting everyone to buy a beer so if you're <laughs> writing musicals you have you actually have it easier in a wacky way or instead of trying to write a whole play in an afternoon oh yeah exactly don't be just don't beat yourself up you got time Beautiful. That is such beautiful advice today, Eve. Thank you so much for your time. Good no luck with the uh, relaunch or with Fangirls. Thank you. Coming up I'll again at there. Belvoir. Thanks. Yeah, you will see me there. I'm definitely going to get a ticket and I can't wait to see the possible series of uh, Fangirls and, and what comes. Thanks, Jackie. Okay, you have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to our Creative Cast podcast series this term. This industry chat is the last of 2020. We look forward to bringing you more engaging stories of the screen, stage, and behind the scenes when we return with the Creative Cast in 2021. The musicals discussed throughout this episode are suggestions only and imply no endorsement by the New South Wales Department of Education of any writer, composer, or publisher. This podcast was brought to you by the Creative Arts Curriculum Team of Secondary Learners Educational Standards Directorate of the New South Wales Department of Education. Join us on the Creative Arts Statewide Staff Room as a source of all truths regarding New South Wales curriculum. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Creative Arts 7 to 12 or email us at creativearts7-12 at det.nsw.edu.au. The music for this podcast was composed by Alex Manton and audio production by Jason King.